Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with the Echo Free Clinic, the student-run free clinic based at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. This past weekend, Echo hosted the New York City student-run free clinic conference in which Dr. Utibe Essien was the keynote speaker. Dr. Utibe Essien received his medical education in the Bronx at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and grew up in New York City, but is now based at the University of Pittsburgh. I will let a friend and classmate, Julia Holber, introduce him in more depth shortly. Uh, But a quick note about the Echo Free Clinic. It was the first student-run free clinic of its kind, established in 1999. And it's based at the Institute for Family Health, uh, which now has 31 locations throughout New York City. Um, And then Institute for Family Health, uh, all their locations are federally qualified health centers, which means they are primary and preventative care sites. All patients are accepted regardless of their ability to pay. Um, So I hope you enjoy the episode today. This is the Healthy Bronx Podcast. My name is Alexander Levine. It is now truly my honor to introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Utebe Asien. He is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and a general internist and health disparities researcher in the VA Pittsburgh Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion. Um, He attended the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and was an ECHO volunteer during his time here before completing his residency at Massachusetts General and Master's in Public Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Essien's research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities in the use of novel therapeutics in the management of chronic diseases, including atrial fibrillation. He has recently applied this research framework to the COVID-19 pandemic, rapidly becoming an expert in the health disparities that are disproportionately affecting minority communities with COVID-19. His work has been featured in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine, and he has been interviewed by several national news outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and NPR. Dr. Essien's leadership in advancing health equity during COVID-19 led him to be named a top 50 experts to trust during a pandemic by Medium, and he was recently recognized by Business Insider as one of 30 leaders under 40 transforming healthcare. On a personal note, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Essien in the Division of Internal Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh before beginning medical school. And in addition to being an expert researcher, clinician, and educator, he's a role model for me and for so, so many medical students and trainees across the country. We're very lucky to have Dr. Essien to guide us to push for health equity and anti-racist practices in medicine, to look up to as we begin our medical careers. And we're especially lucky to have him here with us today to speak about health equity and COVID-19. So with that, I'll hand the floor, um, or I guess the screen, to Dr. Essien. Thanks so much, Julia, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And it was so great to hear from all of you about the amazing work that you all are doing. Um, Again, not letting the pandemic stop the awesome and important work y'all are doing. So I really appreciate it being on uh, around to be able to hear some of that overview. Um, So as Julia mentioned, my name is Utibe Essien, and I'm a um, health equity researcher here at the University of Pittsburgh and really look forward to 
sharing with you all about a topic that I know you all know strongly about, um, but I hope that some of our conversation will be able to offer a bit of a framework for how I've been thinking about health equity during COVID and um, how I think we can continue to move this conversation forward. So no disclosures during the talk. So again, maybe I'll just make sure, Julia, can you all see my slides? Okay. Seems like no issues, awesome. Um, so during the talk, we'll just uh, start with the three objectives. We'll describe the data related to disparities in COVID-19. We'll examine some of the drivers that have been associated with COVID-19 disparities. And lastly, we'll identify some key strategies by which to be able to address the disparities that we've been experiencing during COVID-19. So let's first start with describing the data. So before jumping into the numbers, I always like to start any health equity talk with this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which says, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And I often think, you know, back to this quote, which was now 50 years ago that it was um, said, uh, what a Dr. King would be wondering today as he looked towards our healthcare system, looked at over 8 million cases of COVID-19, over 210,000 people dead. And as we're going to discuss during these next few moments, so many of them coming from disproportionately racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. I also like to start talk conversations like these with a the reminder that health disparities aren't something that's happening over there or outside of our world, but it's really occurring in our own backyard. And this is a map that I've been showing in pretty much any health equity talk that I've been giving, just because it basically shows my story. Grew up in Brooklyn, um, raised in Queens, went to medical school in the Bronx and college in Manhattan. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this map that really shows that as you go through the various neighborhoods in our city, you can really see pretty such stark differences in life expectancy uh, from as many as seven to 10 years, whether you're in the Bronx where Einstein is or in Midtown or lower Manhattan where some of our other medical schools in the city are. And despite the gradual improvement over time in these life expectancy and mortality numbers, we can really see that the fact remains that black individuals in particular are dying at far higher rates than their other racial and ethnic counterparts, even with improvements over time as these data from the CDC show. And so it really wasn't surprising for many of us who are working in the health equity space to see the numbers start to trickle in back at the start of the pandemic. Whether you're looking in Missouri or Illinois, you're looking in New York City or New Orleans, we started to see these really striking headlines that African-Americans were especially dying at higher rates, were getting infected, and were being hospitalized from COVID-19 more often than other um, groups within the country. Obviously, as these headlines show and as the data started to come in, we knew that this wasn't just a black and white issue, right? We started to see that, for example, Latinx individuals were also being exposed and infected from COVID-19 at higher rates than their other groups. As, as headlines from San Francisco Chronicle shows that one of the larger hospitals in that region had nearly 80% of their admissions for COVID-19 coming from Latinx populations compared to lower than about three times the, or higher than 
excuse me, about three times the higher rate than what was usually seen in that hospital. We know, again, as the data have continued to trickle in that it's not just Black individuals, not just Latinx individuals, but American Indians, Indigenous Americans are also experiencing higher rates from COVID-19 in our country. And even some of the most recent data from the CDC, we saw that of the um, 22 hotspots that were de determined by the CDC just last month, several of them were um, seen in largely Asian populations across the country. And so you can see, again, these news headlines and um, research articles really suggesting that racial and ethnic minority groups have been exposed at higher rates to COVID-19. And the reason why is something that we'll really dive into as we go on in our talk. Again, I think it's so important to remind us that disparities aren't just something happening over there, but occurring in our backyard. And while you all are so familiar, likely, with the New York City numbers, I wanted to share some data out of Pittsburgh where I'm um, speaking to you from today. And so these are county level data. Allegheny County is the county where Pittsburgh is located. And you can see that despite Black individuals making up about 13% of our population here in Pittsburgh, they were making up nearly 23% of cases of COVID-19. You can see that our numbers are far lower than what you all are experiencing in New York City. And we're in a city that is far smaller than New York, and yet we're still seeing these racial disparities persist. Those disparities go into hospitalizations as well. So not just cases, but also we see that in hospitalizations here in Pittsburgh, that the African-American population designated by the orange bars here are being hospitalized at far higher rates than their other groups around our city. You can see again back in March and April, the numbers here were really not that bad as you all were experiencing these really striking and alarming numbers in New York City. We were kind of thinking that, well, maybe we just weren't being exposed to COVID and maybe for some reason Pittsburgh was being spared, but it's been so remarkable and unfortunate to see that as the numbers are starting to creep up, our uh, disparities are just so consistent as what we've been seeing around the country. Those around the country numbers are what my colleagues and I at, the, at Yale University started to dive into back at the start of the pandemic. And so we looked at data back in April, publicly available data to show that Unfortunately, as you see in your screen, Black Americans were dying at three and a half times higher rates from COVID-19 than their white counterparts. And Latinx individuals were dying at nearly two times the rate of COVID-19 from um, their white counterparts in the country. And this was at a time when not even every state was reporting race and ethnicity related to COVID-19. So when we collected these data, only 28 states were actually reporting race and ethnicity for COVID-19. Yet as more and more states have reported, at this point, nearly 50, all 50 states are reporting um, those who have been hospitalized for COVID-19 by race ethnicity. 48 are reporting those who have died. And we're seeing that those numbers are still so similar. You can see whether you're American Indian, Black, or Hispanic, their rates of COVID-19 hospitalization are just far, far higher than white counterparts in our country. Those data that I just showed were really consistent with some of the earliest reports published in the New England Journal of Medicine and Health Affairs back in late May. These two reports out of Oshner Health System in New Orleans and Sutter Health System in North, Northern California suggested, just like the national and just like the publicly available data, 
that of those who are coming into the hospital with COVID-19, they were more likely to be Black or Hispanic. And not only did they see that, but they also showed that those who were more likely to be transferred to the ICU were more likely to be Black and Hispanic. What was really interesting in both of these studies, the Ochsner Health North New Orleans study on the top of your screen and the California study on the bottom of your screen, found that while Black individuals were more likely to be admitted to the hospital with COVID, there were no racial differences in mortality from COVID-19 once you were hospitalized. And so it kind of uh, flew in the face of the data that were suggesting that, well, there were biological differences related to COVID-19. And these, that is why Black individuals, for example, were more likely to have the diagnosis. Because once you're in the hospital, your mortality was the same. Folks were getting treated. Folks were receiving the care that they needed. And they weren't dying at the far higher rates that we we're seeing outside of the hospital. So it's really interesting to kind of hold on to that data, that data point as we move on through this talk. As we move on, we also see that um, as the data again started to be collected, that we're also starting to see disparities in children with COVID-19. So these are data from DC National Hospital, which looked at a thousand children from ages two to 22 and saw that black and Hispanic children were both two and a half up to six and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with COVID-19. And that those differences persisted over time. It wasn't just one snapshot, but as you can see from the panel on your right, those numbers continued to worsen as the pandemic persisted. And so while many thought that, well, COVID-19 is a disease of the elderly or as a disease related to chronic conditions, one would wonder, well, then why are we seeing these same disparities in children with COVID-19? So as we think through the reason for those disparities, both in the elderly as well as in the young, we move on to our second objective of the talk, really examining the drivers related to the disparities in COVID-19. And so as we do that, as I've been talking and texting and tweeting about the COVID-19 disparities, I really worked with some colleagues to come up with this framework for how I've been thinking about this issue. And the framework really emphasizes the national consciousness towards health disparities and health equity that has really been ramped up as the last six to eight months have gone by. And so as we move through this framework from risk factors to access to care, to missed care, all the way through to the post COVID-19 era, we're gonna see how health equities have really been, health inequities rather, have been amplified during this COVID-19 pandemic. And then again, in our last objective, we'll talk a little bit through how we can help resolve some of these issues. And so let's start at the top, at the bottom rather, of our framework with risk factors. So as the early data were coming in from China and from Italy, some of the first countries hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, some key findings came out of the publications around COVID-19 that those who were infected were more likely to be elderly, more likely to have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, chronic pulmonary or other cardiovascular diseases. And so as we were on the wards or in our classrooms getting ready to sadly shift towards virtual meetings, we all wondered, well, what was gonna happen when this disease came over to the United States? We know that unfortunately the, these, these diseases, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke, or other cardiovascular diseases, are far more common in minority groups in our country. They are the ones represented in the red 
and on your on the screen here who are more likely to have these chronic comorbidities. And so in turn, we're more likely to be infected and especially more severely infected with COVID-19. We've heard, oh, it's related to the medical comorbidities. That's why we're seeing these really striking racial disparities in COVID-19. And so again, that was one of the big concerns that health equity researchers had as these early information and data were coming out of China and Italy. Unfortunately, that really was where the um, the media in particular and other scientists or non-scientists stopped. They said, well, it's all about the comorbidities. That's why we have disparities. And they never moved on to, well, what was driving those disparities? Why are we seeing higher rates of hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, excuse me, diabetes or obesity in these racial and ethnic minority groups? And so they, they really barely touched on the social factors and the social drivers, which so many of you all mentioned during your conversations about what your health, your free clinics and student run clinics are working on. They forgot to talk about education, employment, income and environment and how all these issues have so much more impact on one's health than the chronic diseases that were being heightened as the real drivers of COVID-19 disparities. And those are the issues that I want to really focus on during our next few slides. The social drivers that have really overexposed certain individuals to COVID-19 risk, as Dr. Kamara Jones likes to emphasize. These social drivers, for example, start with essential workers. Whether we're reading this paper and from the Washington Post or thinking about subway and bus drivers in um, New York City, we know that essential workers have been, as the mantra has been said, not had the opportunity or the privilege to social distance over the last six months. While many of us had the opportunity to work or to um, gain our education through a virtual platform, far more individuals had to continue to go into work every day. Many of those jobs are listed on your screen here as a paper by Dr. Figueroa in Health Affairs um, discovered just a few weeks ago that Black individuals were more likely to hold jobs in home health care and nursing homes, more likely to be riding the public transport or serving on the public transportation system or even riding the public transportation system, more likely to be working in food services, whether in the hospitals or continuing to work at in the, in the, back, of, or in the back of restaurants or delivering food for those of us who have not had the opportunity to go out into restaurants working in construction as well. Again, jobs that you can't just pick up the phone or the Zoom call to continue on, but they have to continue to go into work. Again, increasing their exposure to COVID-19. Along with essential workers, we know that the environment plays such a huge role in how one's risk of COVID-19 has been expressed as well. Again, I'm going to continue to show kind of slides related to my city here in Pittsburgh. And obviously this is Pittsburgh air quality is not just a Pittsburgh issue, but so many parts of neighborhoods in New York City and across the country are experiencing issues around air quality, water quality, limited access to parks or in green spaces. And we know, unfortunately, that this issue of air quality ultimately results in the chronic pulmonary diseases that we know were really responsible for severe infection from COVID-19. So it's the children that have asthma due to issues around the air and lead in their homes that ultimately grow up to have chronic pulmonary diseases or other cardiovascular diseases that again, end up putting them at severe risk for infection, especially from COVID-19. 
along with these at-risk kind of um, factors of environment and neighborhood or of being an essential worker, there are three other really important at-risk populations that I wanted to highlight during our talk today. Incarcerated individuals have been really hard hit during COVID-19, as many of us likely know. These are individuals who may not have had the opportunity to practice the um, classic public health recommendations of washing your hands, wearing a mask, social distancing from their neighbor in their jail cell. And so we've seen across the country outbreaks just outside of Pittsburgh here in Ohio, out in California, and of course in New York City within the prison health system. We know that homeless individuals, I heard many of our colleagues referring to screening for housing insecurity, and we know that this is another vulnerable population to COVID-19. Dr. Travis Baggett, one of my mentors back at Mass General, did a paper early in April that looked at individuals who were residing in one of the largest homeless shelters in Boston compared to those who are coming in for regular daily visits to the hospital and found that there was a 36% positivity rate of COVID-19 back at the start of the pandemic within that homeless shelter. At that same point, there was only a 6% positive COVID-19 rate within the whole entire city of Boston. We can again imagine, just like with individuals in incarcerated cells, how difficult it is for homeless individuals to be within the shelter space, not having the opportunity to social distance. And again, we remember scenes from early in the pandemic, individuals sleeping in parking lots in Las Vegas and all over the country, not really having a safe space to stay during the pandemic. And lastly, I wanted to mention the, the burden of COVID-19 among the immigrant population. This is an article published in JAMA Internal Medicine by some of our colleagues at Albert Einstein and Montefiore Medical Center that really talked about the challenge that immigrant populations have been experiencing far before beyond COVID-19, but in particular during these last six to eight months. These are individuals who are more likely to be essential workers, like I mentioned, and again, increasing their exposure to COVID-19, but are also individuals whose legalization and documentation status has caused them to limit, be more limited in their engagement with the healthcare system, not having their regular screening, maybe not um, fearing coming in for an acute illness. And again, we can only imagine just how that affected these populations during the start of the pandemic. So again, I just really wanna highlight these at-risk populations because these are such big and key drivers for why we're seeing the racial and ethnic disparities that we've been experiencing over the last eight months in COVID. Lastly, one at-risk group that I wanted to highlight were the elderly. You can see from this graph here that it's not just a disease of the very old, but once we get into those older groups, you're really starting to see even wide, not just um, widening, but persistent um, differences in race and ethnicity in the age of individuals who are being diagnosed and unfortunately dying from COVID-19. We know that in our country, white Americans tend to be older, again, based on those chronic diseases that we've talked about earlier and far more issues around discrimination and racism that have also been highlighted in previous talks. But I really wanted to also emphasize this group and again, remember, remind us that it's not just the young that we should be thinking about, it's not just the work's age, but also thinking about this elderly population that often does get left behind within our healthcare system. 
And so we talked a lot about the risk factors in COVID-19. Let's move up along our framework into the access to care step of our framework. And so whenever I think about access to care, despite the decades of improvement in policy and really knowledge around health insurance, the fact remains that we have one of the highest rates of uninsurance in our country compared to other developed countries around the world. And those who remain uninsured of the 27 million, as you can see from this graph from the Kaiser Family Foundation, continue to be disproportionately Black and Hispanic. And you can, again, imagine as the um, dogma coming from public health officials and policymakers at the start of the pandemic was to, well, ask your doctor about your symptoms, make sure you're staying connected to the health system. Well, what did that ask look like when individuals didn't even have insurance to have a primary care doctor to ask about their symptoms? We also heard how quickly so many of the free clinics had to shutter their doors and transition, transition towards telehealth. And again, we can only imagine how difficult that may have been for some communities who did not have the same access to internet or broadband capabilities as many other individuals did have. Along with the issues of, of uninsurance, again, you all really highlighted the challenges that you all faced at the start of the pandemic and of course how you really boldly and bravely overcame them, but not every clinic had that opportunity. Again, even before the pandemic, there are several community health centers, free clinics who are having to close their doors due to lost revenue. And we also saw that some of those health centers were starting to lose their workers or having to completely transition all of their resources towards caring for the acute needs of COVID-19. And so individuals who are using free clinics for their cancer screening, using free clinics for their flu vaccination, for their diabetes care, really lost their main and primary source of health care. And again, it's been such a challenge over the last six months. And I really have been grateful to hear and learn about all that you guys did to address that challenge. We know that there's been an issue with testing around the country. There's a really um, sobering story out of Montefiore um, um, about how some community members really had challenges at the start of the pandemic to actually gain access to a COVID-19 test. This article at the top of your screen talked about how in Texas, out of the six non-hospital-based COVID-19 testing sites, only, all, um, only two of them were placed in communities where minority individuals, poor and lower income individuals were able to have access to them, whereas the rest were placed in suburban neighborhoods. Same thing happening here in Pittsburgh, and then again, I suspect happening all over the country really reminding us of, like this article mentions, the, the biases that have been so largely and a part of our U.S. healthcare system. To that point, we can see that even until today, there are only six states, including Nevada, Utah, and Kansas, that are reporting race and ethnicity of testing for COVID-19. And we can only imagine how challenging it is to be able to know who is being diagnosed, who needs to be contact traced, who um, needs the resources for COVID-19 if we don't even know what the race and ethnicity of those individuals or those communities are. So again, just much, much work to be done in this area of testing and access to care. Along the access to care front, I always want to highlight the challenges around translation. So you got your COVID-19 test, you came into the hospital, 
you are diagnosed, well, what happens when you get into the hospital? What happens when you're in the ICU and you don't have your usual family member at the bedside? The um, the students are no longer available to help support with translation. You're you're there alone, and because interpreters are running around the hospital to care for the, as we saw at the San Francisco General, 80% of individuals who are Latinx, for example, but predominantly Spanish-speaking, how easy it is, is it, or how challenging is it for patients to have these challenging conversations around, well, what do you want your next step of treatment to be? What are your goals for your, um, the care that you're receiving here in the hospital? And so when I think about access, I really think about this issue quite broadly beyond insurance, but what actually happens when you come into the hospital. And on thinking about that, I like to think also about what is that care that you receive when you arrive at the hospital? This was a powerful piece published in the New York Times back in April by one of our colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania and then talked about how rationing was being um, highlighted at the start of the pandemic. In Italy, there weren't enough ventilators, weren't enough medications to keep patients stable and sedated on a ventilator. And we started to have those worries here in the US as well. And nationally and public health officials started to look at their rationing strategies. And we realized like, oh wow, a lot of those strategies are so based on the ability to prevent and withhold diagnoses, diagnoses of chronic illness. As we've seen over the last few slides, those diagnoses tend to reside in individuals who are coming from racial and ethnic groups. And so it was really been meaningful to see how our communities have started to reshape this conversation around rationing of, of um, medications, rationing of ventilators, and really making sure that we're distributing care as equitably as possible. And that really goes all the way from the remdesivir that one might receive in the hospital or some of the newer treatments that are coming out to when vaccination starts to come out. And you can see that one of my, co my colleagues and I got to write about this issue using the example of kidney transplant and really reminding us that Unfortunately, we have been in a healthcare system that tends to, when rationing is an issue, avoid and evade the individuals who are most in need, especially lower income and minority groups. And so we have to, at least at the start of the pandemic, really center equity within all thought processes, especially as we're thinking about vaccination. And these are some of the strategies that Pittsburgh, for example, is using to try and address this issue. And so our next step of the framework is thinking about missed care. And again, this is an area where a lot of y'all touched on um, during your talks about how the transition towards telehealth has um, really been so critical to, to the work that y'all are doing. So I won't spend too much time here, but it was really interesting at the start of the pandemic to think about our standard kind of bread and butter medicine. Y'all on the wards have seen diabetes, hypertension, CHF, when you round with us in internal medicine. But at some point during the pandemic, it really seemed like the heart attacks weren't there. Like the typical quote unquote admissions that we were seeing just weren't making it to the hospital. And so many of us wondered, well, where have all the heart attacks gone as this headline suggests? Well, eventually the anecdotes, the data rather followed some of those anecdotal stories. And this is a really interesting paper that came out of the Cleveland Clinic that showed that once the pandemic started, within the three to the two months, excuse me, that they looked at data before and after the pandemic, they saw really significant drops in acute hospitalizations. 
So they saw almost a 50% drop in individuals coming in for heart attacks, nearly a 40% drop in folks coming in for stroke, and a 20% drop in aortic emergencies. And again, these aren't just that, well, patients all of a sudden got healthier from COVID-19 and during the pandemic and no longer needed our resources, as you all talked about, but I really think that that severe drop in both the acute diseases and in some of the standard preventive care has to do with this issue of the digital divide, where we know that there still are individuals who don't have cell phone access, whose cell phone got turned off or internet and Wi-Fi got turned off because they lost their job and they weren't able to pay those bills. And again, when we completely shuttered our doors, whether it was within our schools, within our offices, or within our clinics, we really forced our patients to have to engage with us in this same platform that you and I are engaging, many of whom just didn't have either the ability um, to do so or even the language to be able to connect with us in this way. And so it's so critical for us to continue to think about this issue of the digital divide and missed care as we move on through next phases of the pandemic. So lastly, I wanna touch on the post-COVID era as the last part of our framework we're thinking about disparities in COVID-19. And when I think about this era, really my focus again, just like most of the focus of my career is thinking about the social determinants of health, the places where we live, where we work, where we play, and how all of these issues so connect, so tightly interwoven um, connect to the care that we provide to our patients and the health that they receive on the day-to-day -day basis. And so in the next four slides, I'll touch on four key social determinants of health that I really think are going to be critical to think about if we want to ensure equity in the post-COVID-19 era. So first, I want to focus on jobs. As we know, the start of the pandemic resulted in nearly 20 million Americans losing their jobs and filing for unemployment right away. Those jobs that we used to be hanging out in offices like I am right now, um, became empty. No one's showing up at work. People were furloughed from furloughed to losing their jobs. Even folks in the healthcare system started to lose their jobs, whether it's in dentistry or in medicine. Unfortunately, we know that individuals from racial and ethnic minority groups were also the ones who are more likely to lose those jobs. We saw that in April when this Washington Post article was published, and even just more recently in articles coming out, we've seen that really it was, it has been these individuals who have been most likely to lose their jobs. We know how closely in our country having employment is connected to having insurance. And I already talked so broadly about how the critical need for insurance and access to care has been during this pandemic and of course beyond the pandemic. So again, if we want to ensure equity in COVID-19, we need to think about this issue of connecting jobs to employment. And we need to make sure that we have a safe social safety net for individuals who have lost their jobs to be able to continue to receive the health care that they need. Next, I wanted to talk about housing. And again, folks have mentioned how they've been thinking about and collecting data on housing insecurity from their patients within our free clinics. This is yet another beautiful paper, um, article published by Matthew Desmond, the author of the book Evicted, who, if you have not yet read it, it's such an amazing book, and I would suggest everyone does read it. And he talks about how during the pandemic, again, losing jobs, losing income has resulted in the loss of housing. We've already talked about how the challenge of homelessness has resulted in higher rates of COVID-19 within those residing in shelters. 
But we know that even before COVID, housing and homeless, housing instability and homelessness was already associated with poor access to healthcare, with higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of mental illness and substance dependence, and fortunately, higher rates of mortality. Again, while my focus has been on homelessness over um, most of our conversation, we also know that when folks have had to lose their income and lose their jobs, they've had to lose their housing. And so maybe they went to live with a cousin or went to live with their grandparents or their went back home to live with their parents. And that multi-general housings, having multiple people and multiple family members within a single home, with sharing the same bedroom, sharing the same bathrooms, again, has been such a critical challenge during COVID-19 when folks have come into the hospital, have been diagnosed, have been told to go home and try and social or physically distance, and of course have not been able to have the ability to do so just because of this issue of housing instability. Next, I wanted to talk about food insecurity. Again, another key area that many of you all mentioned during your remarks at the start of this hour. You talked about how food insecurity is the reason why individuals are diagnosed with diabetes down the line, diagnosed with obesity, diagnosed with hypertension. Again, all diseases that have been associated with chronic um, and severe infection from COVID-19. These are diseases that don't just happen, but it is a result of the food shelters and um, uh, food deserts, rather, that are within some of our lower income communities. It's a result of not having access to those green leafy vegetables served at whole or, or um, served at Whole Foods, but having more access to the unhealthier foods served within the limited um, uh, gr grocery stores within our lower income communities. And this issue of hunger, again, is one that's so critical to think about right now. Our food shelters are being filled and um, folks are really reaching out to those places to try and access food, especially, again, when they have lost their jobs during the pandemic. And so lastly, and I know a key area, an important area to be thinking about out in New York City is the issue of education. We know how closely education is linked to health literacy. Health literacy is linked to not only being able to take care of your chronic diseases when you have them, but also linked to being able to um, actually have that job that helps you to have that insurance that helps you to live a good and strong healthy life. And as we think about just the lost months of education that our children are, have had or are having over the pandemic, it really is going to be critical because these are the folks that you all are going to be caring for as physicians in the next five to 10 years. These are folks who are now in peds clinics, now just getting their vaccinations on the day to day. But that education, again, is so critical to them being able to maintain a healthier life down the line. And so again, in a whirlwind of drivers that we just went through, social drivers in particular, but also some of the clinical drivers of the COVID-19 disparities. And I wanted to touch on in the brief few minutes I have left on some of the strategies that I think we can start to adopt to helping to avoid both the disparities we're seeing now, and again, the disparities that we may, pers may persist in the post-COVID-19 era if we don't begin to address them. And so first I'll admit that many of my colleagues have been writing about this topic. I don't think any of us has not seen a, an article in some of the key leading medical journals related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some really highlighting again, the um, fact that these disparities are not new. And I think that that's hopefully one um, message to come out of this talk by that we should not be surprised by the disparities, but rather we should go back and look at the tools that so many have put out in the past. 
Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo's piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine highlights the H1N1 pandemic, which started back when I was a first-year med student at Einstein. And again, I had no clue what was going on there. I was still going to class. There was no Zoom lectures going on during that pandemic, but they were the same disparities that we were seeing back then. Minority, racial ethnic minorities had higher rates of COVID, of H1N1, excuse me, higher hospitalizations, higher death. They were the same tools and tips that were being described back then. And so rather than reinventing the wheel, we really just need to go back to look to some of that history and really make sure that we're doing what we need to do to address equity. And that's what my colleague, Dr. Venkatramani and I wrote about in JAMA earlier this year. And that's really what makes up these five steps that I like to touch on before we end our discussion. And so first, it's gonna be so critical for us to enhance race, ethnicity, and data collection. I say that largely as a researcher, obviously, but also I think that if anything that these last seven months have shown us is just how critical data really moves action. I remember the day of seeing the tweets from Governor Cuomo that once that like literally hours after the data from New York City showed that black and Hispanic individuals were more likely infected with COVID in um, New York City, he then said, well, we're going to ship out resources. We're going to deliver tool testing. We're going to implement and bolster in our contact tracing within communities in need at that time. Again, it was the data that shifted the resources. And that's why I think we need to really improve our enhancement of collecting those data. We really need to expand access to healthcare, and that takes so many different forms, whether it's universal healthcare, like we largely have in the VA health system where I practice, or it's expanding Medicaid and making sure that the 11 states that still have not done so ha have expansion of Medicaid to help ensure that the lowest income Americans have access to the healthcare that they need. I also think with this point that it's critical to remind ourselves that Healthcare access, though, is, is not the panacea. If we look across the pond to the UK, we saw the same exact disparities at the start of the pandemic. We saw here in the US that 33% of those who were hospitalized with COVID-19 were Black at the start of the pandemic. We saw literally the same exact numbers coming out of the UK in a health system that is a national health system. Everyone has access to care. Everyone carries an insurance card. But we still saw those disparities persist. And I think that while we know that insurance access is important, we have to really address this, the full scope of some of these strategies that I'll be talking about in the next few moments. And again, along those lines is ensuring equitable access to care. And whether that's testing test, um, with tracing or with treatment, we need to make sure that patients not only trust that if they come and engage within the health system that they'll receive the care that they need, but that we eliminate any of the biases, whether implicit or explicit, that we as providers may have in varying the treatment that we provide to our patients. And I talk about implicit bias within the healthcare system. That's a large part of my job as a researcher, but it's also expands beyond the health system, right? It's not the health system that causes the implicit biases or the discrimination in housing that results in African-Americans having higher rates of homelessness. It's not the implicit bias within the healthcare system that's responsible for the educational disparities or for the wealth gap that we see in our country. So of course it's without within the health system that we need to address these, but we also need to look outward and really addressing this issue of racism and discrimination. 
And lastly, something that the health system can do, and I think we're starting to see done more often, um, whether it's within our health systems, I obviously have to shout out Montefiore, um, where I train because of really the critical work that's been doing within the Bronx and within our community there. But health systems around the country are really starting to ramp up their investment within the community and within social services, building homeless shelters, serving as anchor institutions and hiring within the community so that, again, we're addressing each of these and the broad scope of the social determinants of health. So again, I leave you all with, with these three E's or five E's, excuse me, and no way comprehensive, of course, for strategies by which we can achieve equity, but really steps that I think that if we can start to address them now will help us again in years to come when you all are giving keynotes and lectures in 10 years um, to be able to show that we hopefully address so many of these inequities that we're starting and continuing to see within our nation. And so during our talk, we described the data related to disparities in COVID-19. We talked about the drivers. And lastly, we touched on the five E's and some of these strategies that we could use to help to address the disparities in COVID-19. And so lastly, before I go, again, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about how really the twin pandemic of racism along with COVID-19, I think is the reason why I'm speaking to you all today. This conversation that we've been having around healthcare as a weight or racism as a public health issue rather, has really never been at this forefront as it has been over these last four to five to six months. And so I hope that again, as so many colleagues knelt and then their hospital systems in front of their medical schools or um, kind of hashtag the white coats for black lives, that we'll use this moment as a moment of hope, as a moment of transformation, as a moment of reimagining what health equity in our health system can look like. Some of my hope and what does keep me motivated is that the words of my colleagues that pub they were published in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this spring. And they shared that the response to the pandemic has made at least one thing clear. Systemic change can in fact happen overnight. And so again, I so, was so proud to hear about all the changes that y'all made within your free clinics and transitioning over to telehealth, making sure students can come back in safely. Those weren't just random decisions that were made. Those weren't just things that we just happened to be able to do. Those were really systemic and committed and dedicated changes. The, the $1,200 checks that so many of our, our fellow citizens had, that was a deliberate decision that was made. And I think in the same way, we can make this deliberate decision today that we're not going to stand for health inequities in our country. And I really am grateful for the opportunity to share it with you all, to learn from you all, and to be able to see a new generation really help to address some of these issues that we've been touching on. So thanks so much for your time and attention and uh, really appreciate the invitation to speak today. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Atiba Essien for his keynote speech during the New York City Student Run Free Clinic Conference and for allowing us to share the audio on the Healthy Bronx podcast. Also, thank you to Julia Holber for uh, helping to organize um, the connection between Echo and the Healthy Bronx podcast. Um, special thanks to Sana Fujimura for help with sound uh, and to family and social medicine physicians, Dr. William B. Jordan and Dr. Elida Medjioki for their continued support on this project.